Hello and welcome to Cities of Sand, a podcast which unearths the connections between urbanisation and the material at the heart of it, sand. I'm Kate Dawson and I'm your host. Thanks for joining. In this first episode, I speak with pioneering journalist Vince Beiser, global policy innovator Dr Louise Gallagher and eminent storyteller and changemaker Kieran Pereira. Welcome, Vince, and thank you for taking the time to share your insights with us about sound and urbanisation. Obviously, I know you and I know your work, but for people who might be listening who may not be as familiar, could you introduce yourself? Well, my name is Vince Beiser, and I'm a journalist and uh, author of the book, uh, The World in a Grain, the story of sand and how it shaped civilization. That's me. So I've been covering the issue of sand, much to my surprise, for about four or five years now. And, uh, you know, had never really given a thought to sand, never really even, you know, imagined that it was something that anybody cared about uh, until, uh, you know, I, I sort of stumbled into the issue and found out that it's actually the most important solid substance on Earth. And uh, I've sort of been stuck with it ever since. So you said much to your surprise, and this is something I hear a lot when people talk about sand and its importance. You've dedicated a lot of time and a lot of work to it. What was the moment that really drew you in? Well, so I'm a full-time freelancer, um, so I'm always looking for a good story, you know, and I, I so I read a lot of kind of off-the-beaten-track uh, uh, publications and a lot of international press, and um, one day I came across this story about a farmer in India who had been murdered over sand. And I just thought that was that was the strangest thing I'd ever heard, right? Why would, who cares that much about sand that they would actually kill somebody over it? Mm-hmm. So I started looking into it and come to find out that this guy wasn't the only one. He, in fact, hundreds of people have been murdered over sand just in the last few years. And, you know, as, as folks listening to this podcast probably already know, that's because to my surprise, it turns out to be, like I said, the most important solid substance in the world. It's the thing that literally our cities are, are built out of, uh, everything from concrete to glass to the, the, the silicon chips that our computers run on. And I just thought this was, you know, a story that almost nobody knew about, an incredibly important story um, that not only involves, you know, there's not only this, this, this violence around the tremendous environmental damage being done, uh, because we need so much sand. And uh, like I say, it was just it was absolutely fascinating. It was a story almost nobody was talking about. Yeah. So uh, it just kind of pulled me in. Hmm. Okay, so you started it with this one particular story. And then from your book, I know that you've spent time in India more broadly, but where else have you engaged with this issue? For the book, I wound up reporting... Uh, a uh, bunch of different places around the world. So India, as you said, uh, Dubai, uh, Indonesia, China, Cambodia, and then about probably about half a dozen different places around the United States, which is where I was based at the time. I'm up in Canada now. Um, so yeah, I covered a lot of ground um, and talked to a lot of folks in, in a lot of other places because it's really, you know, it's really a global issue. It's an issue that's there's sand mining in just about every country on earth because in pretty much every country on earth, people are urbanizing, people are moving from the countryside and into cities. And uh, as we can talk more about it, if you want, I mean, cities are really built out of sand. So wherever you have people 
moving into cities, wherever you have cities growing, which again is pretty much every country on earth, you have this enormous and growing demand for sand and all the problems that come with it. Right. So this is exactly what drew me into thinking about sand. As someone who has studied cities and urbanization specifically, that's how I got to sand. It would be great then if you could explain some of these relationships between cities and sand. I know you've hinted at some of these. Some are more obvious and some are less so. So wherever, you know, wherever folks are listening to this, if you're in any kind of remotely urban environment, just take a look around you. The walls around you, the floor beneath you, the floor overhead, chances are excellent they are made out of concrete, right? Just like every shopping mall, every apartment block, every, you know, every office tower that's built anywhere in the world today from, from Pretoria to Beijing is made out of concrete. And concrete is basically just sand and gravel that's been glued together, right? So there's an enormous amount of concrete, of sand in the form of concrete we're using to make all these buildings that our cities are made out of. And it's not just the buildings, all the roads that connect all those buildings are also made out of sand, whether it's either concrete or asphalt, basically just sand glued together. So all of the roads that connect all those buildings, plus all of the, the airplane runways, all of the, the harbors where boats come, all of our infrastructure or a huge amount of our infrastructure is made out of concrete. In fact, we use so much concrete, it's by far the most used uh, building material in the world. And we use enough of it every year to build a wall right the way around the equator, 30 meters high, 30 meters across. And again, that's mostly sand. So, and it doesn't stop there, right? So it's, it's all that enormous amount of concrete, but also glass. Every window in every single one of those buildings is made out of sand. Glass is just sand that's been melted down. So in a very literal, physical way, our cities are made out of sand. The number one component, the essential building block of cities turns out to be sand and that's why we're using such incredible amounts of it because you know you know if you're a, you're an urban scholar study kate you know that cities are just mushrooming all over the world mm. we're adding millions and millions of people to cities every year and as a result sand is the most consumed uh, natural resource on earth we use about 50 billion tons of sand and gravel every single year and most of it goes to building cities I mean, those figures are huge and it's amazing to think that until recently, very few people have been engaging with this material. It's sort of gone unrecognized. And this is actually the words um, of UNEP, Grid Geneva and their report that sand is the unrecognized foundation of our economies. So people are now starting to think, well, why have we not been studying this material and the processes surrounding it, which is literally at the core of something that urban researchers, for example, study. So in your book, you do a really great job of highlighting the complexities embedded in this material and you draw out some key benefits of sand in the form of concrete and give a really good sense of what these might be. I wondered if you could expand on these here um, and explain what kinds of benefits we've seen from sand as concrete. Sure well I mean so concrete is it's a great building material in a lot of ways right there's there's very good reasons why we use so much of it and why everybody uses it all over the world. It's cheap. It's really easy to work with. You don't really, you know, it doesn't really require a whole lot of technical know-how. Um, 
It's extremely malleable, right? You can mold it into all kinds of shapes very, very easily. Um, and, you know, for, for most people, for, for millions, billions of people in the developing world, moving into a, a, a concrete structure is a big step up. It's very sturdy, very strong. I mean, provided that you, you know, build properly with it. Concrete is very strong. It's very stable. So in a lot of ways, uh, concrete has been a tremendous boon. And it, it, there's just no way. I mean, if you think about the, the pace and the scale at which cities are growing, people are pouring into the cities, mm. into cities by the millions. Uh, I think it's something like 100 million more people moving into cities every year. And if you try to think of like, how could we possibly build enough housing for those people mm -hmm. if we were only using, you know, things like bricks or bamboo, we just couldn't do it. You know, there's just no way you can build that much housing for that many people with really any other uh, building material. So, so that's why we rely so heavily on concrete. And like I say, it is a good building material, but there are a lot of downsides to it. There are some really serious costs that come with it as well. Hmm. And, and what kind of costs are we talking about, both in terms of the consequences of extracting this much sand from our environments, but also the limitations of actually building with sand and therefore building with concrete? Sure, absolutely. So, um, so we'll start from the beginning of, of the production chain, right, with digging up the actual sand. So uh, most of the, probably the most uh, common way, the easiest way to, to get sand for construction is to scoop it up off of a riverbed. So there's lots and lots of sand. So let me back up a step even further. So we get sand for construction from all kinds of places. We get it from, from riverbeds, from the lake bottoms, from beaches, uh, and sometimes from terrestrial pits, right? From areas on land where there's lots of sand. Like I say, probably the most common of those is, uh, is, is riverbed mining, because it's really easy. All you have to do is put a barge out in the middle of a big river, you know, the Mekong or the Nile or the Yamuna in India, wherever, and just drop a pipe down to the bottom of the river, just like a big straw and just suck that sand right up off the river bottom and onto your barge. And then you can deliver it to wherever it's going. Um, it's easy and it's cheap. The problem is uh, it, when you do that, first of all, you've annihilated the habitat of whatever was living on that river bottom, right? Any kind of fish, or crustaceans or, or, or plant life that was down there, you've just destroyed their habitat completely. Also, by doing that, you stir up all the silt and the muck and whatever else was down there on the bottom of that river. So you cloud up the water, you, 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 uh, you fill the water with sediment, um, which can last a long time and travel a long way. And that can literally suffocate any kind of fish or other kinds of animals that are swimming around in that water. Third is that that uh, sediment floating around in the water can block sunlight from getting through the water down to any other plants <clears throat> that are growing beneath it. So that kind of sand mining, if it's done, if it's not done very carefully, uh, has you know, well that kind of sand mining has destroyed uh, all kinds of, of fish and bird populations that depend on those kind of fish, coral reefs, mangrove forests, seagrass beds. It's done tremendous environmental damage all over the world. Um, so, so that's riverbeds. Also in some places, they're literally digging up beaches to turn it into, uh, turn them, use the sand for building. Uh, in Morocco in particular is one place I know about. 
And that's obviously has terrible impacts again on whatever sea life was living on those beaches, but also can have terrible economic consequences, right? And a lot of developing countries that depend on tourism, uh, they're wiping out beaches. The whole reason that tourists come there in the first place is for these beaches. And if they're digging up the beaches to build hotels for the tourists, you can see how that's going to be a problem. And uh, even terrestrial sand mining that's on land is usually less harmful, typically. But even there, you have a lot of, uh, first of all, you have to tear up the land to get at the sand. So whatever was growing there, which can be croplands, it can be forests, any kind of vegetation, all that gets stripped up, torn up, thrown away to get at the sand that's beneath it. And then you have, uh, you can't have a lot of problems with the dust and the noise and tremendous amounts of truck traffic going back and forth between what was, you know, rural land and, and the cities. Now then when you get to the, the concrete itself also creates problems once it's in place. Like I said, it's a great building material, but it has its serious downsides. One of the big downsides is uh, it boosts heat, right? Concrete is basically artificial stone. And when you have, when things get hot in the summertime in those cities, that concrete just soaks up the heat and retains it. Uh, it's called the urban heat island effect. Mm. And that means that temperatures in cities can be as much as 20 degrees Fahrenheit higher than the ambient temperature around because it's soaking up because of the, of the concrete. And that can be fatal. I mean, that can be deadly in a lot of cities, um, you know, in places like uh, uh, India, where there's a lot of concrete and there isn't a lot of shade and there aren't a lot, there isn't a lot of air conditioning right. um, that, you know, okay, it can lead to fatal heat waves. California's Yosemite National Park is, and as Sweden records, its hottest July in 260 years. Increasing temperatures in Nigeria appear to be a consequence. So I'll stop there. Those are those are probably the biggest uh, ones to worry about. One last thing. How could I forget to mention? Concrete manufacturing, the making of cement, is the third biggest producer of greenhouse gases. So on top of everything else, concrete is a major, major contributor to atmospheric carbon, meaning uh, to climate change. So the industry is one of the big drivers right now of, of uh, carbon in the atmosphere, which is leading to climate change. That is a big, big problem too. Absolutely. And I think this understanding of the contribution of concrete to CO2 emissions is growing in recognition across the construction industry and elsewhere. But as you say, this is in addition to the impacts of actually physically extracting sand from riverine, marine or terrestrial environments. So one of the things that really struck me in your book was the kind of vulnerabilities that are actually embedded in our concrete urban environments and how we imagine concrete to be as sturdy or resilient as something like stone, but actually it has so much potential for fracturing. I wondered if you could talk on that briefly to give us an insight into why concrete might not offer all the hope that we sometimes feel or suggest it does. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really important point. Yeah, concrete fails and fractures in all kinds of ways. Any, you know, heat, cold, moisture, uh, salt in the air, in coastal areas, chemicals that can seep in even through the like, atmospheric pollutants, all those things. Uh, and of course, just wear and tear, right? People, you know, cars going over concrete bridges, people moving in and out of concrete buildings, all of those things 
wear away and stress away uh, at concrete and cause it to crack and cause it to fracture and sometimes can cause it to fail. Like, you know, just uh, just a couple of weeks ago in the United States, that that condominium that collapsed in Miami, they still don't know exactly why that happened, but concrete failure is definitely part of it. Largest uh, building failure in the history of the United States, third to Oklahoma and New York City. Already been flagged for cracking concrete. There was moisture seeping into the concrete, weakening the, the concrete itself, and that's almost certainly at least one of the reasons why that building just collapsed, killing dozens of people. And that kind of thing has happened over and over and over again all over the world. Basically shoddily made concrete buildings collapse. And it's part of the reason that the 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 earthquake in Haiti back in 2010 was so devastating because there was a lot of very poorly built concrete buildings. And when the earthquake hit, they just all pancaked in on themselves. So those are the really, those are the extreme examples, right? That's the most extreme thing you have to worry about is, is badly made or badly maintained concrete buildings collapsing. Mm. But the much bigger problem is that all concrete, we know that all concrete structures have a limited lifespan, no matter how well built they are, they're going to last, you know, 50, 80, maybe 100 years, and then they'll have to be replaced. And, you know, there's already been this huge amount of damage created um, by digging up the sand and gravel that we need for the concrete that's in place right now. Well, if you think of, you know, over the next course of the next few decades, we're probably going to have to dig up that much again just to replace the concrete that's already there. That's a really huge problem that we have not even begun to, to look at. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. I think it really brings home the fact that sand is not an issue to be seen or understood in silo, but it's really so embedded in the ways in which we run our economies, build our cities, and imagine futures for ourselves, urban or otherwise. So that's helpful for bringing attention to the fact that we're possibly going to need a serious rethink of how we develop our built worlds and how we design our built worlds and how we plan for an urbanizing planet. So thank you so much, Vince. It was a great pleasure, Kate. Thanks for having me on. Hi, Louise. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's really great to have you here as someone who's working on the front lines of developing policies and frameworks that might better grapple with the Global Sand Challenge. So thank you. Yeah, thanks, Kate. And thanks very much for the invitation to, to come on the podcast. Um, so yeah, my name is Louise Gallagher. Uh, I'm working currently at um, the UNEP uh, Grid Geneva, which is a group that sits between the UN Environment Programme and the University of Geneva, uh, tasked with um, advancing the environmental monitoring. So what would you say is the core focus of this work? So the focus of the work at UNEP Grid Geneva currently is um, to really define the challenge more clearly that we're facing when it comes to sand and sustainability and provide um, quite a bit of material support to stakeholders in analysing that challenge from where they're standing. So we're trying to balance the global picture about, you know, this emerging global environmental change topic with the fact that we have, you know, a lot of um, context uh, dependent uh, local realities for the material. And then the second thing that we've been really working on is exploring alternative materia- materials um, to sand and gravel that have a substitution possibility at a really big scale. 
and um, yeah, those those two topics are defining the current work. Um, personally speaking, for my side, um, I'm uh, trained as an interdisciplinary researcher, and I currently work in you know, Grid Geneva as an environmental governance lead for the Global Sand Observatory, which is a new program uh, just being established in response to the topic of uh, sand and sustainability. Thank you. Would you be able to tell us a bit about how UNEP for Geneva began their focus on work with sand? What, what drew them to this issue and, and why did it take till 2014, 2019 for this issue to become um, a real focus of the organisation, do you think? Well, uh, I wasn't with Unit Grid Geneva at the at the time when this issue was identified as important, but I've heard the story, and I think a few people have uh, also from from Pascal Peduzzi, who's the director of Unit Grid Geneva, back in I think 2012, 2013. Pascal was involved in a beach monitoring program in Jamaica, and uh, while engaging with um, local experts there and the government officials running that program, he started hearing about um, some really quite worrying trends when it came to uh, people taking sand um, directly off of beaches or out of near shore um, waters um, and even using violence uh, to threaten local communities uh, to you know stay away from their sand. Mm. Um, so this sort of uh, piqued his interest. He just thought if I remember the story correctly, how is that possible? You know, like sand, it's everywhere. You know, like yeah. why would that, why would people be coming with, you know, armed with guns and whatnot to remove sand from a beach? It doesn't make any sense. And happily, he, he had the foresight, I think, to go and explore that question a little bit more deeply. Um, he uh, wrote this uh, great report in 2014 that just put out the question I guess like is is sand as available as we as we think it is and he did some rough calculations using a proxy um, figures he started coming up with were really rather large and so that was the birth of like wait a minute there's something to look at in here it's actually the second most consumed material we are using after water and there's nothing out there about that so that's where the work originated at UNEP Geneva I think through a, a total shock and disbelief that we hadn't been talking about the topic up until then. So what was the reaction to this 2014 report, which included these calculations? The reaction was huge um, mm. to that piece. Uh, you know, a lot of media interest, a lot of interviews. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't think it's unfair to say that sort of as a one-man show, you know, Pascal was out there in the world um, associated with the topic and doing, um, you know, a good job of sort of just saying this is something we need to talk more about. And that's pretty much what he did between um, 2014 and then 2018. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we had this discussion, I think it was like 11th of October in 2018 at the Environment House up in Geneva. And um, yeah, conversation was great. It was a real mixture. Some of the traditionally known people within the sector or within this conversation, but also we brought in some people who had similar and related experience on sustainability certification or on sustainable infrastructure mightn't have been dealing with sand directly and actually that was a big theme on the day people kind of said wow there's so few people who are really know about this topic yeah. in depth you know but we all know kind of parts of the problem and so gosh it's really good that we're coming together to talk about it um, as a group was was kind of the vibe anyhow we wrote up that report and then um 
I think the timing was just kind of fortuitous. Um, UNEA, the UN Environment Assembly, fourth uh, gathering um, uh, of that assembly was happening in the February, the following February. And uh, the material that we got was really great, uh, like magic, it came together. Um, and then it was put on the agenda for UNEA and, and, and ended up having actually quite a large impact. It was directly cited um, in the formulation of a, this resolution 19 on mineral resource governance that basically helped to set a mandate among other things of course there's always many many other things it's never just going to be you know a, a report um but it, amongst other things it started to give us a, a mandate to do more work on this for the first time in fact and mm. so that's kind of where the the boost has come i think after uh, 2019 and it has led to where we are today um, which is basically having a mandate to find out more about this topic and really start to prepare I guess the ground for uh, governments and other stakeholders to to look at it from their perspective and where they are and and figure out what needs to be done. Yeah, I think it's really interesting to hear how various people and organizations have found themselves engaging with sand, sometimes not that intentionally. And this was the case for me. I mean, I was looking at urbanization very much open to the kinds of issues that might emerge on the ground as I spent time in Accra and Ghana. And like elsewhere, sand emerged as this really significant material. And as I began to start writing some of my field notes, reflecting on interviews, beginning drafting out paragraphs for what I wanted to say, I was also turning to this growing interest around sand in the global sphere. So this was around 2017, 2018, and I was kind of anxiously waiting for something on top of the 2014 report. And by 2019, this much longer report came out and it felt really significant at the time. And it also kind of gave me this confidence that this was a worthwhile topic. So reflecting on what you've just said, I wasn't actually aware of this mandate element in much depth. And to me, this seems really important. Yeah, it, it really is. I mean, it's it's like what we have been saying, and um, I'm sure uh, you've heard this before and, and many others, but like it's, it's that material, like we said, is huge, uh, vast amounts of it are being consumed, but we know quite little about uh, about what the implications of that are. And, um, and I think, you know the way I, I put it at least is that you know it's a it's a strategic resource that we don't treat strategically at all and and, and the report did do something um to kind of just put a line under that and say like this is now you know really some a topic that is worthy of the of the attention and focus like you say it's actually not a nothing topic you know it's really something it's a really important question and I think we also were able to um quite quite early maybe put down some kind of I hope at least some guiding lights for like the types of things that we need to have everybody pitch in on because it's really going to be a collective effort to figure this topic out um, and that's what the mandate speaks to right now is like help us understand this like because as you know yourself Kate it's extremely context dependent as to you know, is this a problem? Is it not a problem? What is the nature of the problem? Um, and then what can be done about it? All of that depends so much on, you know, the geological realities, the demand for the material, the application to which it's to be put. And that is really something that's determined at, you know, a much lower level. But I think at the global level, at least it gives like the doors are open, you know, and it says, let, let's let's start figuring this out together. I think that was the sort of spirit, at least I was writing that report with, of, um, you know, we don't have the whole picture, but uh, we're willing to put down what we do know 
say what we don't know and invite mm-hmm. people to get involved in the next steps. Hmm. Yeah, I think that spirit comes across really clearly. So in your opinion, what do you see as some of the most significant takeaways of the 2019 report? We really need to mainstream sound into existing policies and standards and codes of conduct and ways of working, ways of thinking in a way that works with like the realities of the material and, and, and the realities of the on the ground access to that resource and who gets to do that and for what purpose. So it's really about reconciling the global dimension, the global um, need to cooperate and learn more together about this topic and what to do about it. Um, with the sort of local development imperative, the local resource availability question, and the local reality of enforcing um, any any new rules that do come about. Yeah, I think that's really clear. So from the perspective of someone who's building policy and developing ways of addressing this issue, what kind of research do you hope for? What kind of research can we be doing that you think would really help us engage with the global sand challenge in a more dynamic way? From my personal perspective, I think what I, at least what I know from, you know, my own um, work history is that to get very futures oriented and start to place this topic in the context of the big Anthropocene challenges we're facing, Mm -hmm. um, I think that's going to be really critical. Um, So, you know, to not just work within this topic to extend the knowledge about, you know, sand itself, but how it connects to other things. Um, within the sustainability agenda is going to be really critical. Well, I think that's a great way to pause for now. Thank you so much for joining us, Louise. Thanks so much, Kate. It's been a real pleasure. Kieran, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. It's really exciting to have you here as kind of a key figure in the the landscape or research on sand. Would you be able to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your research? My name is Kiran Pereira and I'm the author of a book called Sand Stories, Surprising Truths About the Global Sand Crisis and the Quest for Sustainable Solutions. I'm also the founder of a platform called sandstories.org, which is dedicated to finding solutions to the global sand crisis. I've been involved in this field for many, many years now. Um, and yeah, it's so exciting to, to see it uh, develop and I'm excited to see what the future holds. Could you tell us a little bit about how this research began? You've said you've been in this field for many years and I think that's really interesting because myself as an urban studies scholar interested in urbanization this is very much like a new area of research and thinking about this materiality would you be able to tell us what drew you into this sphere of research so I I grew up in in a city called Bangalore in South India and um, like many of our listeners some of my happiest memories uh, of my childhood have to do with you know playing on the beach and enjoying the the coast and things that Also, some of my earliest memories have to do with water. I remember waking up to help my family fetch water from a public tap. Water was always a topic that was very dear to my heart. And as I paid more attention to water, it somehow uh, indirectly brought me to this this, uh, topic of sand. Because when you talk about ecosystems and rivers or lakes or, you know, the coast, you cannot talk about water without also talking about, you know, what it is embedded in. The the sediments uh, play an incredibly important role. 
Um, so if you want to protect water, it's very important that we also pay attention to, to these sediments as well. So that's how I came to SAM. I came to London to do a master's at King's College. The focus of my study was sand mining. Um, I came at it from the human geography perspective, um, and I uh, did my research around the villages around Mumbai. This was about 10 years ago, so about, you know, uh, 2010, 2011 kind of a thing. And after that, I've had a lot of interesting experiences. I got the chance to participate with uh, in a, quite an important uh, documentary called Sand Wars, made by uh, Dennis Delistrack. Uh, if you haven't watched it, it's it's well worth a watch because it it was one of the earliest documentaries that shed light on this uh, topic and provided a global perspective. I never looked back ever since. After, after that, it was go, go, go. And it's been so interesting and fascinating to see um, uh, solutions also that are, that are being explored across the world. What did your master's research find at the time? What kind of data were you gathering? What did it, what did it indicate about the issue? So at the, at the time when I visited all these villages, I visited villages that were uh, comprised of of uh, fishermen, for example, you know, the entire village of fishermen. And they were talking about how uh, fishing was not profitable enough anymore because the, the, the uh, dredging was completely changing the landscape um, and, and the kind of fish that could survive in those waters. Um, and so when I tried to triangulate this data and I called uh, the authorities, uh, while they agreed that there was, there were, sand mining was a problem, all they said was, well, it doesn't happen in our area, you know, uh, right. there's there's no sand mining in our area. Um, and when I p persisted to say, are you saying that sand mining does not happen? No, I'm not saying it doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen in our area, <laughs> which is which was completely, uh, you know, contradictory to what mm. I was seeing on the ground uh, out there. So um, this whole um, I think uh, cities are developing in a manner that uh, our, our supply chains are so extended and so opaque that we really don't know where these materials are coming from and what kind of impact they may be having on uh, communities that live there or, you know, the ecosystem. Um, yeah, so it, it, it left me feeling quite disempowered, uh, to be honest. Uh, I, it left me feeling quite... Uh, sad about the, the kind of world that we were building. And that's when I thought I'd write a blog and just forget about it and try and move on with life. And that blog got picked up by Dennis Delistrack, who was making the documentary film mm. and life took a different turn. So here I am today. So the notion of the story has really been at the heart of your work, both in terms of your blog and as well as your book. I wondered if you'd be able to tell us a bit about why you chose to engage with stories. Um, what this lens has offered you as a way of connecting with the sand issue? I think stories are incredibly powerful. They're a powerful medium of communication uh, since the earliest human times when, you know, humans gathered around the fire to, to share stories. And that's how we learned. Um, stories are accessible. They make it easy to understand complex 
uh, topics. They can motivate. Stories are really, really powerful. And for me, as I researched further, I was learning so much. I had so much to say, basically, that、mm-hmm. I felt that I couldn't do this topic justice by writing blogs in external media. There was just so much to to this topic, and it had so many、uh, different branches that I, I I felt I had a lot to say, and that's how the book came about. Um, at the same time, I didn't want to add to the to the doom and gloom literature because I think there's enough. We live in a world of multiple crises.、Uh, there are, you know, I think people kind of tend to switch off and get desensitized beyond the point. So, for me, personally speaking, from my experience, I felt there has to be a sense of hope and a sense of agency, a feeling that we can do something about it, and it's not entirely beyond us to solve this problem. Um, and that's why I wanted the book to focus also on solutions,、um, and you know what people are exploring. In your book, obviously, you bring together a lot of different stories, and I haven't read it all. I've read the chapter that's on the website、um, on glass, which I think、mm-hmm. is really interesting. The way it starts off with this story of taxation and and the glass windows is really interesting.、Um, so I'm keen to read the rest of it. But thank you. <laughs>、um, Would you be able to tell us a little bit about how sand and cities, as relational processes, emerge together in your book? I mean, you said something briefly about opaque supply chains. Could you ex- expand this idea and perhaps kind of give a few more examples on what kind of relationships emerged? Basically, I've divided the book into three parts. In the first part, I talk about how、uh, deeply sand is embedded in our lives. In the second part, I talk about、uh, what are the impacts of this kind of use, and in the third part, I focus on solutions. So, as I was researching,、um, you know, how deeply sand is embedded in our lives.、Uh, I, I was surprised by several things, and I think some of our listeners may be surprised too,、um, because when we talk about concrete, which is the dominant mode, right, of、uh, of construction across the world, concrete is basically sixty、um, to seventy five percent of、uh, of concrete comprises of sand and gravel. So you're talking about the the So most of the volume of of concrete comes from sand and gravel.、Um, when you talk about glass, which is another a key architectural element that is used across cities and business districts and things like that,、um, this this flat glass is made up of about seventy percent silica sand.、Um, you talk about if you talk about paints and、uh, that are that are used on buildings. Uh, the pigments that are used in these paints, or even on automobiles, cars, and you know, buses and things like that, these the pigments are, are derived from heavy mineral sands that are from a lot of developing countries. So Sierra Leone, Mozambique, and India, Vietnam, many other places,、uh, and there are huge problems in those regions with, with this kind of sand mining.、Mm. To hear about paint and mineral sands and metals, it really feels as if sand is embedded in so many aspects of the built environment beyond just thinking about concrete. So thank you so much for pointing this out and helping us to kind of complicate our understandings of the relationships between sand and cities. I'm really looking forward to continuing this conversation with you in the final episode of the podcast series, where you'll be leading the discussion on solutions to the global sand challenge. So thank you so much, Kieran.
Cities of Sand, a podcast which unearths the connections between urbanisation and the material at the heart of it, sand. I'm Kate Dawson and I'm your host. Thanks for joining.